Hi, this is Claudia Gray, and you're listening to Don't Burn the Sacred Text. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is the story of Star Wars. You can read along with me in your book. O is for Obi-Wan Kenobi. All rebel fighters met at fleet headquarters to plan their attack. Princess Leia addressed them. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. Hello, I am C-3PO, and you are about to listen to the story of Star Wars. Another chapter is here. Welcome to Don't Burn the Sacred Text. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I am here with my co-host. She is cooler than a Var Chris in the world of war worlds talking to Luke Skywalker. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Lindsay. I cannot wait to hear Drew's reaction. To this it was a little bit of trolling because no, no one is worthy of any kind of comparison to a Var Chris in Drew Brett's mind. I- I was thinking about it last night. Like, we may have found his Ahsoka, you know? Like, oh, yeah, I think we did. Because, like, it's it's somebody he connected with right away. It's somebody that is going to have long form storytelling over multiple mediums. Like, and especially if, you know. Which we didn't even know about Ahsoka at the time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it'll be interesting. Uh, If you didn't know, and if you didn't see by the name of the episode, we are talking about Light of the Jedi today, the first High Republic book. And uh, we are super excited to finally get into this. Uh, A few of us have read uh, the book. Um, I think almost everybody, Adrian and Mark may not have finished it yet. Um, I think one of them was doing audiobook. um, But I think pretty much the majority of us have finished it. But if you haven't, um, go ahead and pause, come back to it, because this is not a conversation. <laughs> this is not the time or place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't want to, if you haven't uh, already read the book, be listening to our discussion, because it will be full, full spoilers. But Ooh, yes. uh, before we get into that, because we, we have a lot to cover, I just wanted to give another thank you. I know I talked about it on the most recent episode of Clashing Sabres, but thank you to everybody who donated uh, to our fundraiser. We were able to raise actually over $1,600, which is going to be uh, between four and 500 books for students across the country. So if you know a teacher that would uh, be worthy, that's kind of a re- weird word to use, but you know, a, a teacher that you want to be able to receive uh, Star Wars books, make sure you go over to clashingsabers.net and go to our nominated teacher page because we are going to have a lot of books. Um, we try to do about 20 to 30 books uh, per classroom. So you can do the math there. We have a lot of classrooms to find. So go over and there. And you can and be that teacher. Yeah, if you are the teacher, nominate yourself. Absolutely. Right, go for it. Um, you deserve it. You really do. And on top of that, on Saturday, we will be having our uh, raffle drawing, our raffle winners uh, be announced. And I will be live streaming that on our Facebook group. So that should be a lot of fun if you want to jump over there or um, if you want to jump over on Rally Up. You should be able to see it on there also. But Facebook page will be our most convenient place to um, see that and see if you are the winner. And if you are the winner, then I will get in touch with you uh, the next week. So big things are happening. I'm really excited. I've been looking up used bookstores around the area so that I can find places that I'm going to go buy out, uh, which is going to be 
it, it makes me feel really good um, because then I get to, it's like going to the library. You can just buy all the books and not have to pay anything for them. And <laughs> See, that's how I felt about when Blockbuster closed. And I just went from Blockbuster to Blockbuster and got all of my DVDs for $2. What a great I very idea. quickly built up my DVD collection. Yeah, it's, um, it's going to be interesting getting figuring out how to uh, get all these books into the car. And I mean, we have to travel a little bit because we live in the middle of nowhere to get to like a decent used bookstore. So there's one about an hour and a half away. And then there's another city about two hours away that has uh, three or four stores. So we're going to make a little adventure of it and explore our little galaxy around here. But um, Lindsay, for you, other than Light of the Jedi, have you been reading anything interesting? Um come across any comics or, or anything that's kind of hit your fancy? I mean, by my definition of interesting, yes. Um, you know, we're recording this just about a month after Christmas, and for Christmas I got a hefty amount of books about other topics that I'm interested in. I think it's it's kind of funny because I don't think my family trusts themselves to get me Star Wars books anymore because it's a matter of what does she already have? What does she actually like? So so they stray away from that. Um, but I was lucky enough to get some books on other things that I'm interested in. Um, so I've been diving into some different uh, biographies and anthologies of interviews and whatnot about uh, artists like, you know, Fleetwood Mac and Bob Dylan and, and a little bit more of that rock and roll side. Nice. So when I've had minutes here and there, it's, it's nice. I really like, um, I don't know if I've said this on the show before, but I really like anthologies of interviews or short stories like Franz Kafka where I can very easily pick it up for 15 minutes and put it back down for a week, as opposed to the kind of reader I am where something like uh, light of the Jedi comes out and I'm like, Oh my God, if I pick this up, I, I have to finish it in one sitting. I can't put it down until I finish it. Um, so those, those anthology kind of books are a little bit less stressful for me. Uh, so, so uh, stoking some other fires, we'll say. There you go. In a less stressful way. Yeah. Um, it's nice to have those little things that you can just kind of pick up. And um, I always have like a book like that at school. Uh, right now I'm reading how to, uh, what's it called? How to Read Literature Like a Professor, which is uh, pretty fascinating because each chapter breaks down another um, theme or common motif that you see in uh, stories. And so... It's a. Uh, it's kind of got like that hero journey kind of vibe okay. to it, but more like just uh, sitting at a coffee shop, shooting the breeze. He, the the author, I can't remember uh, who who the author is. I wish that he had done a little bit like closer to home kind of stories that more people know. Um, he does a lot of stuff that is kind of things that even I haven't heard of, and I I wish we would have stuck more with like the classic stories, but you get the general impression. And there's been some cool things that I didn't know before, like um, looking at things as vampires, um, hmm. considering the violence and the metaphor um, that it can have and, and different things like that. So that one's been fun. And then I'm finally, now that I've caught up on Light of the Jedi and I just finished Test of Courage uh, the night before. And so I was able to jump back into... Uh, Ready Player Two, which has been really, really good, and so uh, I've heard really good things about that. But that kind of speaking to my other point of I, I am not the kind of person who can just 
pick something up and kind of read for a little bit and then put it down for a couple of days. Like, it's something I'm working on. Eventually, we'll get there. But for now, (laughs) I know myself. Well, Ready Player One and Ready Player Two, you really have to, like, you can read it, like, every day, but you have to read it in smaller chunks if you're somebody who is into the pop culture side of things because it is so deep. Like every other sentence is another pop culture reference. So you're See, like, I knew that about Ready Player One and from everything that I've heard so far about Player Two, you know, I don't want to hear too much because I don't want spoilers for it um, for as long as I can possibly avoid it. But everyone I know who has been reading it has really been enjoying it so far. Are you? Yeah, I um, was really kind of nervous about it because Ready Player One it's way different than the movie. Like they're not even close to, they have literally the skeleton of the same story. But um, after reading Ready Player One again, I was like, holy cow, this is so different from the movie. Um, It ends in a really solid, like this is a one-off book kind of way. Like how do you, um, how do you go from here? And so Mm -hmm. I was kind of nervous about that because Sometimes, you know, you get those, those sequels and it's like, oh, God, now this undoes. It's like, so forced. Yeah. yeah, it's like you undoing the happy ending. And this is, I will say the main the main problem um, of this one, the main conflict was kind of self-induced by um, the choices of the heroes. And so it's a lot more... Um, this one is a lot more of an adventure of them all together working together, whereas separate okay. before it, it took to the end of that. And then on this one, because they kind of got themselves into this mess together, uh, they're getting themselves out of the mess together. So it's a really fascinating okay. look at things. Um, but yeah, right now I'm in a chapter and they are in uh, on like a John Hughes planet. So you've got like pretty and pink and breakfast club references all over the place. And it can do the planet can do record scratches where like you'll walk over something and it just starts playing the song. So um, that's actually pretty fun. They they walk across the football field of the high school and man, what's the song? Tell me it's don't you forget about me. Yes. It starts playing. Don't you forget about me. It's pretty. It's pretty great. Pretty great. So um, if you're a Star Wars fan and you're into like pop culture stuff, you will definitely dig that. So make sure you check it out. Uh, It's definitely worth your time. And yeah, that's about it there. So do we have any other updates or anything we need to? I don't think we do at the time. No, I mean, we we do have some. We're working on setting up some interviews for you guys, uh, for some authors. We've got a couple in line already. So um, make sure you're subscribed for that and you'll get some stuff. We're working on some High Republic interviews and also um, a lot of a uh, certain point of view, Empire Strikes Back, certain point of view stuff. So um, if you're not already subscribed, make sure you're doing that. But that's for another time. That's for another place. Right now, let the light shine on Light of the Jedi. <laughs> Let's get into this. Um, I do have to say, it's really ironic that we're talking about Light of the Jedi right now because I literally have a light from heaven like shining on me. It's kind of obnoxious. Um, in my studio, I have one of those like arch type windows and so it's like i got an arch window and then a regular window and the regular window has a shade the arch window that's up really high does not have a shade and the sun decided it was going to shine right on on me right now so it just it seems apropos that we talk about a, a 
book that was about hope and light shining through the galaxy as light shines on this podcast. So am I saying we're the chosen podcast? No? Question mark? But... I'll let you decide. You know what? Let's go. Let's go with. Let's go with yes for you, but no for me because where I am, it's already completely dark, and like I said, we're expecting fourteen inches of snow pretty soon. Wow. So you know, a prophecy misread could have angel, been. <laughs> I was going to say there's a real angel versus darkness <laughs> motif going on here. I feel like that's. And I'm a, not sure how I feel about that. I mean, I feel like it's apropos. You know, like. There's the the bright shining light, but that darkness is still there, you know, which is kind of something that's happening in this book. So um, let's just go ahead and and jump into it. And just to kind of set up all of our high republic discussions, Lindsay and I have come up with five questions that we're going to use to kind of um, work through each of these books. And we're not going to tie ourselves down and only talk about these five things, but this is going to kind of be our roadmap as we're going through. So I'm just going to go through the questions real quick, and then um, we'll get into the discussion. So the first question is, what does this book tell us about the Jedi? The second is what thematic foreshadowing is there with regards to the prequels. The third is what is the status of the Republic? The fourth is what new force abilities were presented and what do they tell us about the force? And then finally, and to me, what I think is going to be most important overall is what is the status of the force? So we're going to get into those questions in this discussion. Uh, We're not going to go through like a a plot synopsis or anything like that. You guys know that's not really our jam. So again, if you haven't read the book, this is not going to be a good show to listen to to figure (laughs) out what happened in the book. Because aside from those five questions, like you said, we are going to be touching on other things because certainly other things happened other than those five questions absolutely absolutely so before we get into those five questions though Lindsay, we have to do our rating all right our Mm pre-discussion rating and it seems inappropriate to do death stars on this one (laughs) so one to five one being uh you know terrible book why did they even waste their time why did they make this one the first entry in the high republic to five being um the level that drew likes of our chris how many starlight beacons do you give this one i mean there are no amount of starlight beacons to appropriately describe how much drew likes of our chris to be clear um but if we're going like four out of five ish yeah i'd give it a four and a half out of five. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I really, really like this book. This is one of those ones where I wish we had the out of 10, you know? Um, because we I can. Feel- it's our no. show. We can do whatever we want. No, no, no. no. I, I, I like the challenge of having to decide between a three <laughs> and a four. You know, like, um, I am going to give this one, I'm going to give it a three. Wow, okay. I feel like um, it was a good set. It was a really solid setup book. But there's a lot left on it. There's a lot left. Let's just I say think that. You, you thrive on character development and whatnot. And that is why this book is not a five for me. Because it did lack that. Um, but I can kind of overlook it. Because in my opinion, it did it intentionally. It's not that it poorly developed characters and it's not like it forgot to develop characters it was that 
unlike the um whatchamacallit the avengers formula where it's hey we're gonna give you two hours one movie in this case one book with every single main character and then put them all together it did the reverse of this where it was hey let's introduce you to every single person you're about to meet and then from that point on we'll break it up into either smaller chapters or maybe eventually books for each one which is is fine it took me a while to grasp that concept and admit that that was okay only because it was done intentionally if it was a matter of these are poorly developed characters and it was completely accidental that they are poorly developed characters, I think I would give it a three out of five like you did. But I, knowing you, knowing your preference, I think you really, really rely on those character development aspects and really relating to at least one character. Am I misinterpreting how you might feel about this or no, am I right I on think, the mark? I think you're up to something i don't know if it's right on the mark um because i was reading it knowing like we're going to get these characters in other places this is one of those i like the the analogy you gave to marvel where instead of getting them individually we're getting them all together and then they're going to spread out i think the reason that i kind of uh was less optimistic the first portion of the book you know the whole great disaster part Mm -hmm. was because the first six or seven chapters were all different characters and so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out which character was who and which species they were and what they look like and stuff because that's one of the things I like about High Republic is we're getting so many different kinds of Jedi but uh, I spent the the entirety of the great disaster going man I'm gonna have to make like a chart and laminate it and stuff and have it like Mm -hmm. right next to me while I'm reading these books because I don't remember what anybody looks like other than Avar Chris and you know and anybody who was on the cover so right that was really right. hard and then really liking especially uh Hedda Hedda Cassette in the first chapter really liking her and then she and then all of a sudden yeah, yeah. and I was like <laughs> and here's the spoilers folks <laughs> right she dies in the first chapter no I I get that because had you asked me at the end of part one what I would have given this book, I quite honestly probably would have given it a two or a three for that reason, because it was engaging. It was fast paced. It was an easy read for sure, but I could have ended it at the end of part one and felt absolutely nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. I, I think the biggest issue that I have with this book and and the difference maker between the three and the four for me is I feel like The Great Disaster was too drawn out. And um, the every chapter is another five minutes was a little much for me when I knew they're going to save the day. Because you're not going to start this off with the Jedi failing and calling it Light of the Jedi. And it's a book about, you know, the, the high era of the Jedi. You're not going to start it out with the Death Star blowing up Alderaan, right? Like, you're not going to start See, it off with I that. I didn't because have you that need confidence. To, but you have to create a sense of faith and trust in the Jedi at this point, you know? Like, that's that's one of the things I, I had um, difficulty with overall, and this is on me, this isn't on the book, but I am so used to looking for the flaws of the Jedi that I spent this book 
looking okay at what they're doing wrong and does this fit into the model that Luke Skywalker and Rey um, you know gave us in terms of what a Jedi should be and what Ahsoka and Qui-Gon and stuff those ones that we look to as like these are the Jedi I was reading it with the lens of like okay where are they falling short because we're so used to that so I think if you had had the Jedi fail in that at the great disaster you know uh, then you're really stuck with how do we create this really belief, this faith that they are the hope of the Republic that the people see. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I'll give that to you. But for me, I don't know for, I think just because I, I'm such a fan of Charles soul and Kevin, Kevin Scott, who's writing the next book. And I know that they tend to lean towards the darker elements. We'll say, I didn't have that total faith where it would not have shocked me if we really did end on kind of, uh, not even end, but even begin in this case on some kind of a low note. Uh, Yeah, I just don't, I don't know. I don't see that being able to work. I don't see you doing the first third of the book about the, the great disaster and then having them fail and then also ending the book with, you know, the ascension of Martian Rowe and the capture of a Jedi, you know, by it. I think, I think maybe that's part of it too. I've said from uh, really the very, the very beginning when we saw the very first trailer for what the High Republic was going to be, that a very crucial part for me in enjoying this and calling this series a success is having a good, um, antagonist, whether it be one person or an organized crime unit and just something unique, something we haven't seen. And this completely delivered. It went above and beyond what I ever thought Star Wars would do, what I ever certainly thought Disney would do. You know, this really, really pushed the, pushed the boundaries on what a Disney entity was going to put out. Um, but for me, I think part of the reason why I enjoyed it so much wasn't even the Jedi aspect, but the, oh man, this is when I really wish I listened to the audio books or we had Zach, <laughs> Zach or Sam on here. Is it the Nile? I read it as the Nile. Yeah, it's the Nile. I think Nile, it's supposed right? to be, uh-huh. it's supposed to be, you know, reminiscent of the word nihilistic, you know, which is basically, okay, that's anar- what I thought. you know, anarchist and, and destructive. But they were, they were exactly what I wanted them to be. And everything that I feared Disney would kind of put an early end to because it wasn't family appropriate. Mm, I never really thought about it. From it, it, These felt, they didn't feel any darker than, you know, what we got in um, like a Rogue One or a Solo for me. Really? You know? No, yeah, they for, did. for me it was, I, I love having like a Star Wars like, drug addiction you know like we, we yeah see that, you know and, and i know this is a family show um but assuming that everyone here has read the book this should come as no shock here but like we see a group of organized criminals literally just snorting cocaine that part did yeah. going up from there like i i like that and that's the kind of thing that's always kind kind of lightly been implied when they talk about spice runs and this and that but to actually see the different ways that they can 
get involved with this and see what it's like for them to be on it and what goes through their minds. Like that's really, really cool for me. Well, and I like the, I like the setup of the Nile with the different, basically like levels and tiers. Yeah. It gives you, and, and you'll see this in test of courage. It gives you the ability to do, to make them of different levels of, I guess, uh, competence, you know, you can have a, you know, really incompetent character in a younger book who, you know, is mustache twirling bad guy or whatever. Um, and also have someone like Marcian Rowe who's scheming and planning in the same organization where I don't think you could necessarily mm-hmm. have that in a Crimson Dawn or anything like that. Like you couldn't have right. that in the Shadow Collective. Um, this so that's is more of a multi-level marketing scheme mm-hmm. than it is the New York Italian Mafia. Well, and the potential with having it be um, something that recruits people uh you have a diversity of species there and everything like that that to me is a lot more interesting than being like all the Falines are black sun and all of the the uh huts are part of the you know hut syndicate and, and things like that because then you have the potential for bringing in different species for bringing in you know situations where uh you can have somebody infiltrate you know one of the nile infiltrator or somebody infiltrate in the nile like there's a lot more that you can do with something that's not based purely off of the species and it's instead based off of um a set of beliefs and and a um i guess a desire for their own perceived freedom yeah yeah so those are really interesting and i the jedi were i mean i really liked the jedi in this like i said it was weird because i was reading it in, through the lens of like what's wrong with the jedi where are their flaws and you know mm-hmm. wh- what does it cause but Charles Sewell did a really good job, in my opinion, of balancing making them the knight in shining armor heroes that we needed them to be without beating you over the head with it. Would you agree with that? That's that's a good way to put it. Um, I was a little bit worried that this would be the kind of story where it's just like, here are these infallible heroes. Mm -hmm. They never do or say anything wrong. You can trust that if anything comes out of their mouth, it is 100% for the best and accurate. And I guess there's nothing to point to the fact that he didn't do that, but it wasn't the main point of the story. And that's what kind of keeps me involved i absolutely hate when it's just like hey here's the hero they're perfect i said that time and time again i that's not an intriguing story for me that's not a captivating story for me but to have individual jedi where it's like oh these are cool people they're all very unique they all have their own idiosyncrasies but as an order what was what was surprising to me was that it's not that far off from the order that we see in the prequels yet. It's really not. So like, let's go ahead and jump into like what this tells us about the Jedi. Our first question, Mm -hmm. because one thing that I noticed is that they are already starting to have that arrogance. They already have had years of so little opposition that they're, are difficulties for them when an actual real threat comes around. Right. And this is a really weird analogy, but go with me for a minute. 
when wrestling was big in the 90s, you had the Monday Night Wars, and you had WWF and WCW going against each other and always going for the ratings. So everybody was pushing harder. They were pushing to get the bigger stars. They were pushing to do the better matches. They were pushing to tell the better stories. And you have some of the greatest wrestling in history in that era. And when WWF bought WCW and there was no longer that competition... It was years of WWF kind of riding their coattails and ratings going down and people not being into wrestling as much to where now when there's a new thing that comes along, they are just trying to, ah, we're just going to ignore that. We're just going to push it off to the side. It's not real because it's not WWE, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So there's not like a real threat to them. But when a real threat happens like AEW coming around, which is a new organization that's gets on cable TV that actually is doing good storytelling. Like you're starting, you see how much they struggle with what do we do now? And to me, that's kind of what we have with the Jedi is they've had decades and generations of, we can show up and just end this pretty, you know, not necessarily without, without trial, but pretty simply, pretty easily to where, you know, being able to do a big jump is the biggest issue that, you know, one of our characters is facing, which seems ridiculous to us when we, you know, see Anakin just jumping out of the speeder and Obi-Wan being like, I hate when he does that, you know, like their difficulties are not the same as those of the Jedi in the, the clone wars and the prequel era because it's been so long. And so I think that's what mm-hmm. makes the threat of the Nile so interesting is it's not only something that we don't understand as a threat. Uh, it's something that the Jedi don't understand as a threat and because of their arrogance and because they're, you know, they expect to just show up and run the show, you get a situation and you get a believability of the Nile being able to capture, you know, Great Storm at the end. But what does it really teach us, though, overall about the Jedi and their status? Because for me, it's it's so much... I think we need to differentiate it between the Jedi Order politically and structurally as opposed to religiously and spiritually because I think there's a lot that they have learned about the force in the hundreds of years between the two stories. But it seems to me like the, the overall structure and the way that the Republic relies on the Jedi order is pretty identical between episode one specifically and the light of the Jedi. See, I would argue otherwise because there's a recognition by so in the Republic that they don't run the Jedi, that the Jedi can, you know, be asked to come in and help and okay. will, you know, do what they can and, you know, believe in the Republic and things like that, but they are separate from the Republic, you know? Um, whereas in the prequels, you start out with Chancellor Valorum sending secret Jedi to, you know, Naboo. It's it's very much the Republic is in control of them. So I think we're still pre that actually being that intertwined, but I don't think it's far off. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And I, I guess you're right because I'd never really thought of the whole secret mission aspect in episode one. For me, it's the the Republic didn't start to take full control until episode two 
when now we're dealing with Palpatine and for obvious reasons, of course he was going to take control of the Jedi order. But yeah, I guess in, in episode one, maybe it is a little bit more Republic controlled than I ever felt ready to give it credit for. Yeah. I think because, you know, even when something as important and big as possibly the chosen one comes, they're still like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll deal with that later. You know, we'll deal with this most important person yeah, in the history yeah. of the Jedi later because we've got to <laughs> do this thing for the Republic. And I think Fair. I think there Fair. definitely is um, a connection between the two that is being set up, especially when you look at having uh, romantic entanglement mm-hmm. already coming into play with Avar Chris and Elzar Mon. Um, I mean, you talk Which about I have being, to say it was just so well done. I mean, I ship it. it. It was so well done, but also, and not in a bad way, it was really heavy-handed. Like, having them Mm -hmm. on Naboo, on the lake, talking about Mm -hmm. what it would be like to leave the jet. Like, it was not subtle. Um, But it's not supposed to be. No, 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 it's not. It's not a flaw of the book at all. Absolutely not. It's very intentionally, and I felt very well done, where if you're going to have to, if you're going to, in 400 pages cover this entire destruction of a system plus give the reader new information about the status of the Republic, the status of the Jedi order and information on this entirely new criminal syndicate and introduce all these characters and give us background on the Santa. Like that's a lot. You have to be a little bit heavy handed where you, you can be and make these connections quickly where you can just to save yourself time. So I don't see that heavy handedness as a negative or a drawback by any means. I a hundred percent agree with you. It, to me, it's reminiscent of the chapter in Leia princess of Alderaan where Leia puts on one of Padme's dresses. Yeah. And you're like, I know this should be asinine and ridiculous, but somehow I'm crying right now. I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. It, it, she, Claudia Gray doesn't try to be like, oh, which dress is this? You're like, no, this is the dress she wears at the end of episode you know, one. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was something that was really, really interesting to me. And the other thing that really, like, I, th- I know a lot of people got behind and really to me, was one of the coolest things to come out of the book was the different ways the Jedi hear the Force. How, like, each Jedi hears it individually. Yeah. You have... Whether um, it's the song or the ocean. The or... song, the ocean, you know, uh, the... I think Buryaga, the the Wookiee is, like... It's, like, leaves on a tree and different things like that. Um, so, as far as... Let's not jump too much into, like, what the status of the Force or Force abilities or anything like that quite yet. But in terms of... Um, the role that the force played in here and how it was presented. Do you feel like, you know, Charles Sewell did a fair job at the very least? I do, because I think it goes back to what I was saying before with each Jedi feels very individualistic. Mm -hmm. And my fear was that when we're talking about the High Republic and the golden era of the Jedi, it would be so cookie cutter. And so easy to say, like, this is what we want the Jedi to be. Every single Jedi is just the embodiment of this. But instead to say, hey, here's how each Jedi kind of customizes their approach to their relationship with the Force. I like that. That's something that I think works really well for me and kind of 
calm down a lot of my fears going into this. And I think it adds legitimacy to why the Jedi would disagree with each other on things. Like, especially the council scene that you get. And yeah. even, you know, to to think talk about foreshadowing in the prequels, like how these this council doesn't only disagree on, like, whether the politics of things yeah Yeah. it's like it's actually the the philosophical aspect of it which i mean is much harder to figure out than the political side of it and so if you're you know it's to give it an analogy you have you know uh a fundamentalist jewish person you have a progressive jewish person you have a catholic you have a fundamentalist christian and you have uh, a new age christian and you have a spiritualist all in the same room trying to decide you know, agree on something. And sure, they all have the same book in front of them, but they all read it in different ways. They all interpret it in different ways. And to me, you know, I, I go, Oh, like, especially that scene where we're going, we know what's right. Do this. This is what you're supposed to do. But because they have these different understandings of the force, they have different interpretations of the will of the force. And so, um, it makes it more difficult. What's interesting for me, just to take it kind of a step further, is to say that it's not as surprising that when we look at the council, right, and we look at the higher ups in the top notch form are the ones who are really disagreeing with this and having an issue with this. That's less surprising than the fact that the people who are boots on the ground, and I think this is a really good reflection of just current times and kind of society today, where yes, the people in office, the people making these decisions are disagreeing because they firmly believe that philosophically and religiously they are in the right. But the people who are boots on the ground and dealing with each other on that day-to-day basis they take less issue with it. You know, when we look at just part one on its own, everyone kind of acknowledges that someone else treats the force differently and they're okay with it. They respect it and they treat it as that means to an end. It's only those really higher ups who are dealing with all of this in theory that have an issue with it. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, to me, it remind it reminds me a lot of um, kind of a, a discussion I got into with my students um, reading Jacqueline Woodson's Brown Girl Dreaming, which is a really fantastic uh, book if you haven't read it. And in the book, it's kind of her discovering her identity during you know the civil rights era, being a an African American girl who is split between her parents, one in the North and one in the South, and there's a parallel setup between the grandma who reads the Bible and the brother who reads comic books. And the discussion that I got into my students with, got into with my students is at the end of the day, does it matter if either one is literally true? And the answer is not really because they're using it to become a better person to think about higher purposes, to think about their purpose and their identity. So if everything they read ends up being false, ends up being fiction, you know, at the end of the day, they still lived a better life, you know? And the biggest issue was 
getting stuck in that structure of not being able to apply the lessons from said books, whether it be a comic book or, uh, you know, a religious text to your life and become a better person. And that's the balance that I think they're having to strike here is, yes, we like um, uh, Jorah, I think is her name, right? The, the master that dies. I'm completely, there's so many characters. There's so, especially Uh, in the first 50 pages. I think her name is Jora Morell or something similar to that. Tweet at me, like at me at Clashing Sabers because I know I got this wrong. But she basically gets down to, she's like, yeah, this is ridiculous. Like, it doesn't even matter what they say. Like, this is what I'm going to do. So let's just go ahead and get this formality done because this is what's going to happen. Uh, to me, that was it was just a really interesting dynamic, and I think it adds a lot of tension um, to where we to what we're going to get in the other books, but then also to um, where we end up in the prequels. So, with that in mind, let's talk about the thematic foreshadowing that there is with regards to the prequels, uh, because there's a couple things that I noticed. We we already talked about the um, Elzar and Avar being, you know, Anakin mm-hmm. and Padme. But one thing I really liked about this book after I finished it, uh, you know, is you have this big event with Starlight Beacon opening that's providing hope and it's bringing the galaxy together. Uh, very similar to the way the Gungans and the Naboo were brought together at the end of episode one. And I was just like, so is literally the antithesis of Palpatine. Like, she is the perfect inverse of everything yeah. that he stands for. I like that. That's something that I didn't really yes. catch on to at first. And and I'm happy that you said it because I think of all the questions that we had planned on discussing, this was kind of the... I don't want to say I didn't find anything to connect to, Um but this was a little bit harder for me only because I was so busy taking in all of this new information. Um, but I, I like that thought behind it um, and really having that highlight why this is, as we're calling it, the High Republic. You know, this is at its best. And maybe it's not the fact that every single individual and this is maybe where I put the wrong weight on things. I was expecting every single individual to be the absolute perfect example of what someone in the high Republic should be when that's not the case. It's really just coming from the fact that the leadership is saying we're less self-involved. We really are worried about every single person under us. You know, you have the Senator who is voicing concerns, not because of his own, um, what's his name? Senator Noor. Uh, yes, I think that's right. Yeah. You know, he's voicing his concerns not because of any selfish reasons, but because he's really saying, hey, there's going to be riots. There's going to be people who are suffering. It doesn't matter. You know, we never really see, oh, he's up for re-election. Oh, he works with these organizations who fund his campaigns. It really is just, hey, there's going to be issues down the line. And we need to be ready for that. That's not what's best for the amount of people. Um, so so I kind of like seeing those connections. And I think that's something I had trouble finding at first. Yeah. Um, and again, it's like that. The, I think the biggest challenge, even more than like introducing a new era that Charles Soule had, uh, was finding that perfect balance for both the polit- politicians and the Jedi of they are good. They are 
pure, um, but also they're human flawed. and flawed. And that's not a difficult thing to do because you do, like I said, like you're calling this light of the Jedi. You're going into this book knowing like this is going to be a book about hope and not hope in the way that you get in like a uh, rebel rising where you're like, I know what's coming. I know eventually it's going to be okay and she's going to save the galaxy. It's like, no, th- you need to end this book going like, okay, yeah, sure. The Nile, they, they have the Jedi, but overall things are good. You know, like there's a lurking threat, but you need to feel good about the galaxy. Um, and that's not really uh, something that's easy to do, you know, especially when you spend a third of the book creating a great disaster, which again, the way that they solve the issue and the way that they work with the Republic to solve it is something that is really, um, to me, provides a lot of hope. Yeah. 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 One other, one other one. And I just want to throw this in, um, real quick that I picked up on is this fear about what's happening in hyperspace and the adamacy of the, uh, the Santecas that, it's not possible things with hi- that can't happen in hyperspace. I wonder if this is one of those situations where a fear kind of is created in the galaxy about things that can go wrong in hyperspace. And if that's almost an ingrained concern with regards to the trade route disputes that we get in um, the Phantom Menace where, okay, if you shut these off, you know, it's going to create all these other problems and what other issues will it have in our movement across the galaxy? Um, and I don't know. Am I, am I getting a little too flexible here? Or do you think that there's possibly a, a threat of connection? Um, there's a thread. There's a, I don't know if the thread is as strong as you want it to be, but there is a thread. Yeah, um, I, I think it's, for, I mean, at best, it's like a, a thin fishing line. Like, it could snap at any second. Yeah. For me, the the biggest kind of takeaway um, into, you know what, I struggle to say this because it's not so much the prequels. Can I get into just the overall Star Wars? Yeah, Skywalker sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, the fact that it's I think our show, we can do whatever we this, want. There we go. I love this motto. Um, I think they actually say this, but the kid who it's his idea to get the, the Navi droids together and create these projections who ends up kind of becoming this unsung hero. Uh, I think his name is Kevin. They make a point quite a few times to say he's the son of a farmer. You know, he is no one. And to have that connection where it really could, and this was the point of the original trilogy more so than the prequel trilogy, but you can be the son of a farmer and think that you're going to amount to nothing in life and end up saving the entire universe, whether you get the credit for it or not. Yeah, and the fact that he wasn't in it for the credit of it. like he, Yeah. It was like he was in it for the art of it. Um, and just overall in terms of his job, you know, like he was never there because of the money or the prestige or anything like that. He was there because he wanted to, um, find the best ways to do things. And, and when he's leaving to go join the larger galactic government, he's leaving because he doesn't feel like he can do, he's done what he set up to do there. Um, which is, you know, it's noble, you know, like it's, it's, It's yeah. really, it's really, something. Yeah. 
it's not uh it's he he's not self-interested but also not against kind of what's the best way to say it kind of competing against himself like kind of always pushing himself to be the best and he's not afraid to take the risk to make that happen but not in the way of like an Anakin where he's doing it for his own self-interest and uh desires but in a I want to make the world a better place the galaxy a better place kind of thing yeah Yeah. that's a good way to put it um I think we kind of discussed most of this but what's the status of the republic right now um, is it the status of the actual Republic or how the Republic thinks it is? I think that's, that's a big disconnect there. That See, that's what I was thinking too. That's why I wanted to hear your reaction first. Because like, I think the Republic thinks it's good, but are they considering the fact that they are knowing that there are pirates out there and marauders running rampant in the Outer Rim and they're just like, uh oh no we're gonna build we're gonna spend millions of dollars building <laughs> oh, this shucks. starlight beacon yeah. <laughs> to make things better like here's this great thing that's gonna make everything awesome again and so you know it? what i'm gonna say that the status of the empire is strictly hubris at this point did you just say the empire i did just say the empire oh my god you're right <gasps> i was like oh my god See, that just kind of shows you where they're at. Like, there's that thread there. Um, No, I I think it's really interesting because you do have, you know, this book is setting up that they're going to, Starlight Beacon is going to heal all wounds. They're going to make a few of them, you know, the the great works are going to bring the galaxy together. And when you get to episode one, you still have slaves existing in the Outer Rim. And the people from the Republic are shocked by this, you know, like Padme is really taken aback that it still exists in the galaxy because the narrative is everything is awesome, which is, you know, it is more awesome during this era. Like things are better, obviously, than when you have Palpatine coming into office that, you know, that's, that's kind of a low, but, they're not as perfect as I think everybody thinks they, um, thinks that they are, they are. Yeah. Or that they're yeah. going to be, you know, like I think, yeah. I think the expectation across the Republic is things can only possibly get better. Again, it's kind of like that. What I said about the Jedi to, where they're almost sitting on their laurels, you know, We've done such a good job. We've helped this Republic grow so much. Yeah, and, and not in an undeserved way. That, I think, is the discrepancy. I think when we talk about hubris, people would assume that it's undeserved. They haven't actually done the things that they thought they have. But in this case, no, they have. They, they deserve a vacation. They deserve to say, hey, look at everything we've accomplished. Their issue is they see that as a, okay, we're done. Nothing nothing is going to touch us. Yeah. But yes, it is. Well, and if you think about, um, you know, the idea of Camelot, which was brought up, you know, in the production of this uh, era, you know, you have the two Camelots. You have the Arthurian Camelot, which, where that's really present. You know, you have um, the Knights of the Round Table and everything is going to be great. And then, you know, 
because of the because they were kind of sitting back, things fell apart. And then you have the Camelot of, um, you know, the mid 1900s America that mm-hmm. we've made it to the moon. We've done all these things. We have presidents who are as charismatic and good looking as JFK, you know, and, and we made it through the great depression. Like what could possibly go wrong? And, you know, then you go into the sixties and seventies where you have this whole group of people going like, yeah, that was really good for the elites. But, like, what did you do yeah. for us? What about and, everyone else? Yeah. Yeah. So, I think that might be something that we see happening later on in the story. You know, there's the three eras. Um, and I, I'm wondering maybe if this is like a to, to put it in that parallel of, um, you know, American culture. If, like, where we're at right now in phase one is that, you know, 50s and you know early 60s america and then we get into the 60s and 70s america uh and then we get into you know the 80s and 90s where things are very up and down you know in terms of like there's a few years where everything is great and a few things where everything is rough and there's a lot of swinging back and forth and you know knowing that we're getting to that empire era which you know just to complete the analogy is the the 20 14 or 2016 through 2020 and now apparently 2021 you know where things are like wow the suck is really big um it'll be interesting to see if they parallel that throughout since they've kind of got both bookends already set up you know like you have this era that we're in right now of american culture where things are pretty brutal your empire and you have the camelotian era um I don't think it's a one-to-one, but I think there's definitely potential there for... Comparisons to be made, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, All right, so then let's get into the Force, because if anything, I think this is one of the... This and Master and Apprentice are probably two of the best in terms of building the narrative of the Force on the publishing side of things. Uh, To me, Mm -hmm. it felt very much like... Clone Wars Rebels kind of building of the mythology without so much of the weird. Like Clone Wars because you yeah. know and Rebels because they're visual, they can go a little bit more of that weird because they're not depending on you to create the image. Um this isn't so much weird stuff, but it is lore building. It is mythological. Um and so let's start with you know the biggest one in terms of uh Force abilities. So, to just to review the question real quick, it's what new force abilities were presented, and what did they tell us about the force? The big one that's presented is the force connect uh, that Avar Chris does, um, which I know we talked briefly before about on on Clashing Sabers is really similar to the battle meditation uh, that we get in the Thrawn trilogy. But to me, it is it's better. It's it's what well, yeah, because then we see her do it outside of battle too Mm -hmm. you know there's the one part where she i think it was actually kevin going back to that character where she just touches him and is like hey calm down you know and she and she connects to him that way through the force and she's able to hold back his mood so it's not just battle meditation because it does go that step further and i think more effectively um than just Hey, we're in battle. We kind of need some Jedi. Here's an easy out. Um, so it's it's an effective tool, and I like that we see it played out in a few different ways for a few different ends as well. Yeah, because battle meditation to me, and the reason it always bothered me, like sure, 
it's a it's a really good element to add to the power of the Jedi. It's a really good element to explain away some of the uh, more difficult to believe reasons that the heroes overcome all the obstacles. But when you're dealing with this Force Connect, to me, it's more about instead of defeating the enemy, it's about bringing people together. The idea mm-hmm. that we are stronger together. Uh, you even have, I think it's, I think it's Briaga, the Wookiee, who is kind of like not believing that they can do it, and uh, his master is like, "No, we're, you know, we're stronger together. We can do this if we all give our effort, depend on each other, lean on each other." And uh, that is, I mean, to me, that's like the epitome of what a Jedi should do. But like, an individual Jedi is not supposed to save everything. If you look. You know, let's let's go to you know Luke Skywalker. He doesn't try to save everything. He tries to deal with the problem that's in front of him and trust the others to get the the uh, shield down. Even if you go to you know later in the Last Jedi, Luke doesn't come in and do anything wild and crazy and try to defeat the whole First Order because he's depending on the Resistance to get away and fight the the good fight to you know fight another day. There's, yes, he's doing something great and heroic and something that we should aspire to, but there's never a sense with Luke Skywalker that he's coming in and like he says, you know, what do you think I'm going to face down the whole First Order by myself? There's never an element where it seems like he could win the war all by himself. It's always, you know, him in communion with others is how he's able to, uh, or how really everybody is able to save the galaxy um, in the sequels and in the original trilogy. So that kind of, to me, is is a very, very Star Wars theme, and that's what this Force Connect kind of thing is all about. I do also just want to clarify, because I caught us doing it a couple times already, and I'm about to, I am just about to do it again, which made me think of it. Um, I think we're referencing a conversation that we had with Drew a couple of nights ago from recording this, um, but on our main Clashing Sabers show, uh, we actually had a conversation about kind of our best and worst uh, force abilities, and we referenced some of these topics as well. So I think you and I are about to reference a conversation that we had there. So anyone listening to this conversation who hasn't already heard the Best and Butts episode of Force Abilities, um, strongly recommend going out, going over and checking that out. It was a really fun conversation. And if you like these kind of topics, we obviously cover it very much in depth. Um, but one of my, my points on that episode that I'll reiterate now is a lot of the force abilities that we were quote unquote introduced to in the light of the Jedi or light of Jedi, um, aren't really new. We're kind of just being introduced to them in a different way, in a Jedi way. We have seen them before, whether it be specifically just through Luke Skywalker, not as part of the Jedi Order, or even in Legends through the Sith. Um, So there are a few examples, whether it is this Force Connect where we saw Darth Bane do it for obviously a much different purpose and a very different means to a very different end. Um, But we've seen a lot of this before, and it's just kind of bubbling up in a new way. And we're getting it from a different perspective where it's, hey, it doesn't necessarily need to be the dark side. And that, to me, is the biggest takeaway of what we're learning about the Force now, is when we aren't dealing with the Sith, 
and we aren't dealing with dark side users, we're able to see how the Jedi are using the force in a very different way. And we don't have to compare it to anything. We don't have to say this is light, dark or gray. It's just, oh, okay, this is something people who can access the force can do. And it's totally fine. And it's, it's a real breath of fresh air for me to not have to classify it one way or another. I don't know if you would agree or disagree or if that's something you miss, but that's a big takeaway for me. Um, something I hadn't really thought of, honestly. It's hard for me to say anything without referencing Test of Courage, which we're going to cover uh, on our, our next episode when we cover Into the Dark. Let me just say... I will agree with you, um, and I think that Test of Courage adds on to that conversation. I think you're definitely going in the right direction of how they're trying to present the Force and these Force abilities um, to where, yeah, the the Force just is, you know? And, like, yeah. it's one of those situations where, sure, we, we try to label it to help our understanding, but that's not the way the Force really, truly works. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I have to hand it to... Um... Ezra over on hyperspace hangouts, because this is something that he kind of introduced me to. Oh man, it has to be uh, well over five years ago at this point, but he's always said, you have to treat the force like it's its own character. It can't just be a plot device. It can't just be part of the story. You have to talk about the force as a person and as its own character development. And uh, it really, made me appreciate Master and Apprentice in a different way, and it's really making me appreciate these stories in a different way. Yeah, like, it, it, to go back to the conversation that we you know, had before on the uh, the main show on Tuesday, the Force has a will, you know? And, like, we have to acknowledge that, and if we just look at it as this power, then we have an issue. Uh, if we look at it as something that exists purely for the cool tricks that it can do, um, then we start to come across a problem of really understanding not just the force, but the narrative overall. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hopeful with all of the things that we're going to learn and say overall though, for this book, for this story, I don't think we saw that many crazy new force abilities um, unless we could make the argument that uh, Mari Santeca and her, you know, kind of path system could be force related. Um, but if, if we keep clear of that argument, because I don't think there's really anything to prove or disprove it, I don't know how many completely new and inventive force. I know you hate this word, but powers we saw. Yeah, there weren't a lot. Um, on the Mari Santeca note, I'm just going to, I want this on record so that I can go back and say that I was right. There's going to be some <laughs> kind of connection between what's happening with her and finding the paths and what we're getting in the, Ascend the Thrawn Ascendancy trilogy with the 
Um, yeah, yeah. The uh, what are the they? Skywalkers. Skywalkers. Yeah. Thing. How did There's, you forget Skywalkers? <laughs> because I kept just wanting to say Pathfinders, and I knew that wasn't Come right. Come on, man. That's what the that's what Kess Dameron is. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but no, you're. I I kept reading it, and it's funny because I really did keep reading it, trying to find more connections, and I I didn't find nearly as many as I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going, going to be some real one-to-one comparisons and that Mari Santeco was going to answer a lot of the Skywalker questions, but it seems relatively separate for now. But yeah, I think you're onto something. I think there's going to be some connection. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I don't know if there's going to be like, you know, they, I don't think it's going to be a situation where they meet each other and we see like, you know, Thrawn's grandparents or anything, but I think it's going to be pretty clear for those of us who are keeping up with everything that like, ah, this is what's happening over there. That's also happening over here, but it's not going to take away if you're not reading the Thrawn uh, books, which I can't blame you. Um, With that said, (laughs) the, the biggest thing for me that I noticed just like in terms of force abilities was just that there was a lot of uh, what I'm calling force multitasking where in the prequels and in, I mean, really overall, when we see the Jedi doing things, it's usually like one big thing that they're doing. Uh, they're doing a mind trick or they're, you know, sensing the, the blaster bolts or whatever. Um, whereas here we've got a lot of different things I feel like are going on. We've got, um, you know, the, them piloting, using a, a craft that is based on their ability to to use the force and also uh you know concentrating on the what's it called the debris of the great disaster and catching that and stuff like it just it's really cool to see how the jedi are not they're not compartmentalizing their abilities they're not compartmentalizing like right now i'm doing this and right now i'm doing that but they're in they're at such a place where they're able to to use their abilities to their fullest potential they're able to use them in unison yeah i think a lot of that though is kind of the public persona aspect of it because we see most of this i think in part one where people are so genuinely not just relieved to see the Jedi, but there is an aspect of trust where when civilians, when people who work for the Republic see a Jedi come in, it's a matter of, and I think they actually say this quite a few times, I don't really understand how this works. I don't really get the force, but they do. So I'm going to do what they tell me. And I think that opens up the door for Jedi to be able to, as you say, multitask because they don't necessarily have to fight people the way that we're used to seeing in the Clone Wars era. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Yeah. Um, I mean, even in what I think is the coolest force moment of them all, which is when uh, Avar and Elzar, which are um, a dyad in the force. I'm just, I'm going to keep on that until it's proven wrong. They are a dyad. Bold claim. Bold claim. They are going to be the dyad. Um, With that said, when they are basically, you know, creating the rain clouds and stuff like that, like there's a conversation there that happens a lot of like, I don't know how they're doing this, but they're getting, you know, the ends justify the means almost, which, you know, would create that complacency that allows for the Jedi to slip and slide because it's like, ah, we'll just send Jedi and they'll fix it for us. And it's like, mm-hmm, 
is that really the best way to go about it? You know, like just not considering how they're getting to those ends or why they're getting to those ends or, you know, different things like that. And like, but um, there, there's a conversation that can be had about that. Um, again, this is something that just having finished Test of Courage is on my mind a lot because it's a question that is present um, in that book and throughout that book of like, how do we use the force? Why do we use the force? Do we just accept that this is the way things are or are we a part of making things the way that they are? Uh, which is a really interesting question when you know where things are going later on and we blame, you know, the fall of the Republic and everything on Anakin and Palpatine and whatnot. But it's like, well, it also could have been set up, you know, way before this. Uh, things could have, you know, deteriorated over time to go to what, you know, George always talked about, about, you know, Republics are not overtaken, they're handed over. Um if we're handing over more and more faith in the, to the Jedi and trust in the Jedi, then they're able to create that narrative, whether they're doing it, you know, intentionally or not. I don't think that the Jedi ever create this infallible, you know, narrative maliciously, but it's definitely something that could become a problem later on. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I also just want to add to the thought of they're not doing it maliciously. I would say it's, are they even the ones really doing it at all? Or is it coming from public persona and kind of just working its way up? Is this, is this entire thought process an entire ordeal coming from the Jedi themselves? Or is it coming from the actual people of the Republic, which is making it so much more dangerous? Yeah. And is it both, you know, like I think we have, in our own world, we have a, a bit of a narrative of the infallibility of religious leaders, you know, and how many religious leaders have fallen or taken advantage of uh, people in really obscene and disgusting ways. And yet we continue this narrative that like they couldn't do wrong because they're a preacher or whatever it may be. And when that happens, it allows for negative things to, to, you know, come about because we're not looking at the true person. We're looking at the idea of the person, which is really, really dangerous. And some of that does come from societal willingness to accept that persona, you know? And if we just accept the persona that the Jedi are infallible and they can do this with the force, so who cares how they do it? Well, at that point, what's wrong with having a Sith in control, you know? Like, he's can do these things too. So, you know, it just, it, it's a slippery, slippery slope to the dark side there, which is really interesting. So what about the force? What's the status of the force here in your opinion? Oh, wow. I, I mean, I obviously knew you were going to ask me that question. I have to be totally honest in my notes. I kind of left this blank, hoping that our conversation right now would help me decide an answer to that. Um, but I think the force is, let's say misunderstood at this point, you know, the, the Jedi talk so much about their interpretations of it and how they interact with it, how they quote unquote control it, but they don't realize there's all these things lurking in the shadow that 
are going to present issues down the line. So I'm going to say that the status of the force is my word is going to be unstable. Interesting, because mine is kind of the opposite of that. Right now, I would say the force is comfortable and possibly even passive. Um, because the Jedi are doing their thing. The Sith aren't really around. Like, we know they're there, but they're not really, as far as we know, doing anything to manipulate what's happening right now. Um, it's kind of it's kind of just status quo. It's stat quo, you know? And it has been that way for a while. Uh, but then again, it's also to go to, you know, what you're definition it is the calm before the storm so i don't think it's like a good passive i don't think it's at peace um in the way that it should be at peace in terms of it's evil is gone and things are you know improving and we're looking at the and considering um not just the the larger lives of the culture and the society, but actually individual lives of the people and the way that we're affecting them. And um, so I would say the force is kind of sitting back right now because there's not a big way that it needs to intervene. Um, and I think a lot of this is comes from my interpretation of how the force balances itself. You know, when you have Anakin fall, then you get Luke and Leia, like the force was trying to balance itself there um when you get ben you get ray because the force knew what was coming and and created the um thing that would help balance that and right now i don't think the force is having to do that i think the force for you know lack of a better word is imbalance it is it's okay um yeah i think that's it more it's not that it's an imbalance it's it's okay Yeah, yeah. I think the reason I picked the word unstable is because my interpretation of the epilogue in which, again, you know, figure if anyone's reading this, we are completely into spoilers now. Um, So I will spoil the last, you know, three or four pages of this book. But the epilogue is now warning us about something that happens and we're getting that warning through the force. We are Mm -hmm. getting this snippet into... Jedi, I think the words are not just retreating, but fleeing and these Jedi being in pain and we're getting this warning. And my interpretation of the epilogue was that that was the first time the force sent out a warning to a Jedi, at least in some time, you know, I'm not saying the first time in all of history, but it is the first time in this era where the force is now acting of its own instead of just having the Jedi use it as a tool and using it for their own orchestrations or them being in control. It seems like the force is kind of stepping up and being like, hey guys, still here. Might, might want to listen to what I have to say. Um, so that's that's why I kind of stick with, it's not stable because we're now giving it a little bit more control and it has more to worry about for the first time. Okay, so that leads me to two questions. One, do you think that, this was a, the, the epilogue was a version of Order 66 that they were sensing, obviously not like a, a one-to-one because things would evolve over time, or um, do you think that this is something that we're actually going to see later in the High Republic? I think it's something that we're going to say, because okay. think about it, the High Republic has to end for us to see the Republic era. Right. Um, it's so interesting. 
Yeah, there, there's a lot of potential there. I, it got me thinking, and this leads me to my other question about Mortis. You know, like you have Mortis existing out there with the father trying to balance the son and the daughter. And when it needs the Jedi to help it, uh, to heal it, when it needs Anakin in particular, it sends out an ancient uh, Jedi code. You know, and you're you're saying that this is maybe the first time the Force sends out a warning in a really long time to the Jedi. Got me like, okay, r- warning that beacon or that uh that code that it sends is the first time it's been used in a really long time because things are starting to go a little south for what's happening on Mortis. Um, I think there's an interesting parallel there. I mean, I want to channel my inner Zach Christman and really speak about this passionately (laughs) because I think that Mortis is such a heavy arc and it's something that's given us so much. And we talk about it all the time, right? And when you think about it, after, you know, seven seasons of Clone Wars, two seasons of Mandalorian, what four seasons of Rebels, how many movies, how many books, how many comic books, all this material we've given we put so much weight on what happens on Mortis. It is 60 minutes of storytelling. <laughs> it is it is a three episodes out of how many hundreds of episodes and different TV shows. Really and truly, we haven't even come close to tapping into the potential that Mortis has as a story and as everything that could influence us to other stories. They have to bring this in at some point, and I don't see a better place and a more appropriate place to start talking about the gods of Mortis than in the High Republic trilogy, specifically with writers like Charles Soule and Kevin Scott. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't actually thought about them bringing Mortis in. I was looking at it more of like a a similarity in style of storytelling, but, but, but that's think, the thing. We talk every single time, you know, whether it is, okay, they're bringing, bringing the Bendu in to Rebels, or they're bringing War of the World, oh, War of the Worlds, wow, the World Between Worlds in. Like, there's, there's so many things that we always connect to Mortis, and it's never really, our, our hypothetical connections haven't really paid off. I think eventually they're going to have to pay off. And I see this as a very safe place to do it. Not safe in a bad way, but safe as in it makes sense to do it. That's fair. I dig it. I'm always cool with going back to Mortis. Uh, I think there's really interesting stuff to do there. And especially um, if you consider, you know, what we do have in the Mortis trilogy and the fact that like the sun is just now beginning to really uh try to take over which is you know literally what we get with palpatine like it's a, it's a big metaphor for what's happening and so i think you can do some cool metaphorical force stuff without uh you know going back to what we've been talking about a lot without beating us over the head with the fact that this is leading to the story that we all know so um just real quick other topics that we wanted to talk about i know i wanted to just say that Marcion Rowe is really fascinating to me. Um, I know Charles Sewell, I, no, Charles Sewell or Kevin Scott or one of the authors um, tweeted out that they say it Marcion Rowe, 
but I refuse to say it that way because Marchion Rowe sounds a lot more like like a French villain who is uh, really intelligent and is manipulative and things like Marchion is. So to me, he's always going to be Marchion Rowe because it makes him sound fancier and thus more dangerous. Um, but what was your thoughts on on his character? Uh, loved everything about every single character in the Nile. Loved the concept of it. If I could bring absolutely ele- any element that we have ever seen in a Star Wars book to live adaptation, it would be the Great Hall of the Nile. And it would yeah. be every single per- for me. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Warriors or gotten the reference of the. You know, when the kid stands up in front of thousands of people and he goes, can you take it? That's what it reminded me of. And I was just so thrilled to see that kind of energy brought into Star Wars. It kind of revitalized a lot of my love for Star Wars in the scenes with the Nile. And with then actually seeing, okay, so this is the energy that the syndicate has contrasted to Markeon Rowe. And all the stuff that he is hiding, all of his personal machinations, I think that's a really hard balance to get. And Charles Soule just nailed it. It's, it's to me, it's always been, okay, the leader of an organization is going to personify what that organization is. But to see that dichotomy here and to see those differences was really effective, at least for me. Yeah, I agree. And I mean... You have to do it without, and this is the hard part that they're going to have with the High Republic, is you have to make these believable villains that also don't outdo the Sith. And you have to make a manipulative leader who is moving puzzle pieces around to where he needs them to be without outdoing Palpatine. Um and that's, you know, it's not something that's easy to do. It's a very, very fine line, which is, I think, why they chose the authors that they did, because these are authors that can handle doing that kind of thing. So uh, any other closing thoughts? I know we could, like, go through this book literally, like, every single event that happens and talk for hours about it. But any other big arching things that we didn't discuss quite yet? I don't think so. All right. Yeah, I think we kind of covered everything. I'm just going through. I think we covered everything I, I kind of had on top of my mind. And like I said, like we could literally go through every single thing that happens mm-hmm. in this book and parse out what's happened. Every and, single and, and, character. And, yeah. Because like, there's, there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, overall, though, I mean, what was your general idea of the storytelling and giving us every single character in advance we'll say and then ideally we'll get more into their minds and more into their development would you prefer that kind of introduction or more of the avengers model where it's hey here are 13 14 books for each one and then we'll bring them all together i think it all depends on how well they are presented individually in other books um, right now okay. I'm okay with it because I'm able to read it and go like, all right, yeah, I'm definitely going to have to revisit this once we get a few more books in the high Republic, because I'm going to have more of a knowledge of these characters and of these people. Um, so I'm not against it. 
like I said, it was a little rough for me in the beginning, and then they stopped getting into so many different Jedi, and they kind of had like, mm-hmm. here's Team One, here's Team Two, and that was a lot more right. Star Wars to me, which I liked. Um, so I'm gonna say I'm opt- cautiously optimistic because if we, if most of the High Republic is like this, where you just have a like. 10, 12, 14 Jedi, you know, off doing things. And it's hard to keep up with exactly who is who and who's who's master and what do they look like and all of those different factors that you have to, you know, consider when reading, then we have a problem. But if um, it's a situation where, you know, here we're, here's where it all starts and then they parse them out and they really, you know, these, this story is focusing on Avar and Elzar, and this story is focusing on Bell and Great Storm, and you know, uh, yeah. and individually. And here's their connections. Exactly. Yeah. So if, if we get that, that yeah. I think we'll be good. But um, overall, like I said, I'm really, really hopeful. So let's go into our final ratings. After this conversation, you started with a, a four, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So where are you standing at? Okay. I'm going to keep, I really, really did enjoy a lot of things here. Um, I, I definitely get what you mean. And I totally agree with you that typically and traditionally, I would prefer a little bit more development for each character and then getting into the plot. Um, but I think Charles soul did it in a very effective way. You know, it was fast paced. It was interesting. I think this is the first time in a long time that I picked up a book and just didn't want to put it down. Um, full transparency. I actually read this. I started reading this in an airport and I remember being pissed off that my plane was about to board because I was like, Oh, I know it's only for like three minutes of waiting in line, but I don't want to put this down yet. Um, so it, it goes against the grain of what I would typically like, but if it had to happen, I'm happy that it happened this way. And I am looking forward to not just more High Republic stories, but more Charles Soule novels. Let me ask you this. If we get, or once we get more High Republic books, do you think it has the potential to reach up to a five? Once we get more of like, oh, that's what he was setting up. Or do you think like, it's a uh, solid you know lock as a four? Great question. Great question. Um, I don't think it has more potential to go up to a five, but I do think it has potential to go down to a three if the other books don't deliver the way that I want them to. Okay. Well, yeah. that said, um, my rating is going to go up to a solid four. Uh, yes! I, the more that I look at it and kind of had the conversation of the, the things that it's setting up and the dynamic between um, the Jedi and where they stand and everything like that, uh, it made me like it a lot, a lot more. And considering how, I guess just really how the dynamic is set up and how the Nile are a perfect foe for the Jedi at this time is something that is really, really exciting. So we've got more coming. We've got uh, the comics that are coming out. Uh, Like I said, on the next episode, we'll talk about Test of Courage, which I finished and really enjoyed. And we have uh, Into the Dark coming out this week. So lots of uh, High Republic books and Star Wars books. And eventually I'm actually going to be able to read some Legends books if I can ever catch up on um, these. So (laughs) 
I'm not going to be <laughs> Don't reading. Promise, but you can't deliver. I know, right? I'm not going to be reading anything but Star Wars for the rest of my life, which is okay. And I'm not going to be doing anything but podcasting about it and talking about it here on Don't Burn the Sacred Text. So you can find us here. Uh, like I said, subscribe. We've got authors coming. We've got more fundraisers and ways that you can support our mission to get books into classrooms. Uh, make sure you're in our Facebook group so you can join us for that live uh, raffle. And if you want more uh, ways to support classrooms across the country, go over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash clashing sabers. So Lindsay is on Twitter at the lady of lore. We are on Twitter at clashing sabers. All that stuff is in the show notes. So just click and you're there. It's easy. I make it easy for you because I'm just such a such a good guy. I'm a light of a guy. I'm Speaking the light of show of the notes podcasters. and clicking into things, do you think we can also include the very helpful kind of character map that you sent us over? I think it was last night with pictures of all the characters being introduced and their relationship to everyone else in these stories. I think we can figure that out. Yeah, I think oh, that might good. be worthwhile. All right, we'll do that too. And who knows, maybe I'll get laminated ones and sell them at Celebration. Who knows? Lots to come. Stay tuned. But until then, keep reading, keep writing, but whatever you do, don't burn the sacred text. All right, by this point, you know how this goes. Their stuff, their stuff, our stuff, our stuff. Not associated with Lucasfilm. Kathleen Kennedy, give me a call. Dave Filoni, I'm there if you need me. Our thoughts? They're our thoughts. They don't reflect Lucasfilm or anybody else associated with this stuff. So if you don't like it, we're sorry. If you do like it, great. Let us know either way on iTunes, on whatever podcatcher you're listening to us on. Rate us, review us, share us, tell your friends about us, and it, whatever you do, just don't burn the sacred text. 